ABMP, Associated Bodywork Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from HealWell. Membership with ABMP offers comprehensive liability insurance, along with meaningful resources and support that make a difference in your career, including free CE in the ABMP Education Center, quick reference apps like 5-Minute Muscles and Pocket Pathology, Pocket Suite Scheduling and Booking Software, and the Inspirational Massage and Bodywork Magazine. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Hello and welcome to Interdisciplinary Season 8, the uh, informally named Season of the Switch welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, Glad you're joining us for this season with more continuing conversations. We have a super fancy, exciting guest again this week um, that we are really looking forward to hearing from. But first, we know why you're here and you know why you're here. It's because of the pun. So we have with us, um, rarely heard from, but always in our hearts, Laura Bryant-Erner with the pun. (laughs) So in fine Healwell tradition, I went looking for a bad pun in honor of our fancy guest today. It has a medical bent, so keep your hats on. We're ready to go. I went to the library to get a medical book on abdominal pain. Somebody had ripped the appendix out. Ah, Okay. Fabulous. Well, that happened. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, well, I, I want to just get right into it because we have been um, reading some articles to, that our guest has contributed to, and we're just really interested um, in hearing from our guest, Dr. Hudson. Um, Dr. Hudson, welcome, and please tell us about yourself. Well, first of all, thank you very much for making me feel welcome uh, on your, your, your podcast. Uh, so I'm Matt Hudson, and I operate in the capacity of research director for a hospital that's located in the Southeast. Um, my background, academically speaking, is I hold a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. I hold a Master's of Public Health with an emphasis in behavioral science, so I'm very interested in understanding how to maintain the wellness of communities. But I also have a PhD in evaluative clinical science, which really has three foci. One is understanding healthcare quality improvement processes. The second is understanding healthcare policy. And the third is understanding how patients make medical decisions, particularly those that are complicated by medical uncertainty. Um, I am a third generation San Franciscan, and I traveled to the other end of the country and received education in rural New England. And now I find myself in the southern states where I work for a healthcare system that particularly aspires to understand patient, provider, and organizational factors that mediate health outcomes and patient well-being. That is excellent. That's, you know, there's, there's a little San Francisco connection. Our guest last week on the podcast, um, Chase Anderson is a psychiatrist at UCSF. Oh, really? Okay. Um, Yeah. yeah. No, I grew up about 15 minutes from UCSF. So. Oh, fantastic. Um, So it's, it's a large, small world. (laughs) In that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we have, I I know we have lots of, of questions that have been really interested in, um, what you what you write about and think about and publish about. Um, but I want to start, if I may, with something that might be a little bit less um, academically fancy. Oh, I'd um, love that. I'm not an <laughs> academically fancy person. <laughs> Sweet. Excellent. Neither am I. Um, <laughs> but you talked about, you know, growing up in California, Northern California, which I, I know that's different than... <laughs> Then sure. Southern California, um, going to school in the Northeast, 
and now living and working in the Southeast. Um, and because this is a season where we're talking about code switching, we're talking about communication um, and how we adapt that and, and um, how that might be harmful, helpful hinder, uh, hindrance sure. or not. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you learned in your journey across the across and through different parts of the country about um, code switching and adapting and how that's played out in your life. Wow. Well, well, first of all, b before I answer the question, at least the way that I I'm trying to understand the question, can you define code switching for me? That's please? an excellent question. Um, no, um, I can, no, I can define it in the way that, that we are understanding it. What we're finding, I'm so glad that you asked that because what we're finding with everyone we talk to is that's the first thing that we talk about, um, which makes me think that, okay, so this is, it's a phrase that we all know what it means, but none of us know what it means. Sure. Um, when I, when I am saying code switching, I am talking about um, adapting language and behaviors uh, to fit into, specifically with an eye to fitting into um, an environment, yeah. period. Um, and I'm, I am happy to, to consider any other implications from that. For, it, for me, it's always had a very, a very strong racial implication. Um, sure. uh, and I know we've had guests on that are think about it differently, um, but that is how I've been thinking about it lately. Sure. Okay. So I could answer this question from the perspective, from a interpersonal perspective, and from a transdisciplinary perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think which one I want to take on first. Let me take on the, the, the professional interdisciplinary perspective first, because um, we can go much deeper into just who I am thereafter. Um, so as I stated previously, I have a background in psychology and public health and behavioral science. So academically, I grew up contemplating the notion that a person's health was predicated primarily on environmental factors, and maybe not primarily, but, but, but heavily influenced by environmental factors, that, that an individual um, was subject to sociopolitical forces, uh, community forces, um, the built environment, and all of those factors shaped the, the manner in which one grew up, one maintained health and also influences life expectancy. Okay. And so when I frame how to keep a person healthy, my default is to think about things like um, walking trails, um, smoking regulation, um, uh, how to blunt intimate partner violence. Um, any, any number of, of, of uh, trying to address and challenge any number of maladies that may befall not just an individual, but a community, okay? That's my bachelor's and master's training. I went to a PhD program that was primarily, in my opinion, this is only my opinion, but it was primarily driven by a biomedical paradigm, a, a, a notion that health really um, began within the individual. And from a healthcare perspective, the notion that creating a better doctor would beget better health for a patient. So the thought then is that if we just teach people how to be better doctors, how to be better surgeons, we will then improve health and improve health outcomes, okay? Now, if you've been listening, there, there's, um, if it's not a discord, it's a, um, it, there's a different way of thinking about health compared to how I grew up, right? So I grew up thinking about health being a function of the environment. 
and the and the world in which I found myself in my doctoral training thought more critically uh, about um, provider care and how that produced health, right? And so I, I think what's left out of the latter consideration is that one can produce a fine doctor and have that doctor address a particular malady, but it's possible that when that patient leaves the hospital, they will be subject to all of these socio-environmental circumstances that portended their need for healthcare in the first place, right? And what that might set up is a revolving door that, um, that causes individuals to fluctuate between states of clinical care and, uh, and illness, forcing a patient back into a health system. Okay, so, so there is this um, duality for me that I, I was forced to try to reconcile, which is my background and training uh, on sort of community and population health uh, initiatives and public health initiatives, and thinking critically about how to get healthcare systems to work better and produce doctors and nurses who could treat patients better. Okay, so so in that sense, I had to. Um, I don't know if it's a um, a complete code switch, but I had to shift my perspective and even change fundamentally what was. Um, I had to change my research approach given the type of environment and the the culture and the curriculum in which I was working. Apart from that, within a heavily clinical environment and with, with individuals who are operating on a set of biomedical assumptions, that usually includes a particular language, right? And it's a language with which I was not familiar in any way, shape, or form. Okay. And so when I, like any student, had to address a homework assignment, it wasn't simply the volume of the homework assignment. It was the preliminary work that I needed to do before I could even address this assignment. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so if your assignment is to, um, if you're not bilingual and your assignment is to um, provide a synopsis of Don Quixote, which is written in Spanish, and you don't know Spanish, what you're going to have to do is get a dictionary and go through that, go through that treatise line by line, word for word, to literally interpret the language. Yep. And then assign meaning to the language. Yep. Okay. Now, even if you do that, you interpret the language and you assign a meaning to a language, you still may not be capturing everything that you need to know in, in order to, to speak in an authoritative fashion. Now, what is it that you're missing? You are missing the culture and the assumptions that motivate what was written in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So shifting out of the metaphor, it wasn't simply that I had a lot of clinical or, or medically slanted work that I had to get through, I had to learn what those words meant. And even when I learned what those words meant and could string them together in a sentence, I didn't understand the context that motivated it. I didn't understand why it was significant because I didn't come from that culture. Maybe the better metaphor would be to say, if you were born in the United States and you, you grew up speaking English, and all of a sudden you were dropped in the middle of France, right? Where everybody speaks French. Yeah. You don't speak French. And so what you do is you get a pocket dictionary to help yourself navigate France, right? You're in Paris mm -hmm. and you're looking through your, your, uh, your dictionary, trying to figure out how to get on the bus and, and, and order food, et cetera. And maybe you can cobble together some words uh, that, that help you communicate. And there may be there may come a time where you can get reasonably facile communicating in that language. However, what you may notice when you're in a group of individuals 
is that you start talking about something and everybody starts laughing and you're not laughing. You understand what they say, but you're not laughing. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you're not laughing? You're not laughing because you don't understand the cultural context that motivated the statement that makes that statement funny. Yeah. So you are alone, right? It doesn't matter how well you learn the language. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't matter how hospitable the individuals are within that group. You are still lacking this cultural context that informs a complete understanding of whatever the subject matter is that you're, that you're addressing. I hope I didn't go too far afield, but what I think I'm trying to convey is that in this notion of code switching, to my mind, you're not simply charged with deciphering a code and transposing that or, or reiterating that code. You're charged with, in, in order to completely assimilate, you're charged with understanding the culture that motivates it. Yes. And, and that is incredibly lonely because it's incredibly challenging and nobody is going to help you do it. Right. And so in instances where you want to code switch, you may be challenged to do so. And in, in instances where code switch is imposed on you, you may be challenged to fully satisfy those expectations, which I, I can imagine creates a significant amount of um, frustration and consternation for a person because I know it did me. Yeah. yeah. Does that, that make sense? That makes total sense. And thank you so much for, for walking through that because I think that that's something that has maybe been l- lacking a little bit or lacking um, in upfrontness in the conversations we've had so far. As the now, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt yeah. you because yeah, keep yeah. in mind, I'm just talking about the professional domain. Right. right. Now, right. now, now, while I'm wrestling with this professionally, this is a third generation San Franciscan. Yeah. Moving all the way to rural New England. <laughs> all right. Yep. Now, yep. now, I hadn't seen falling snow in, until the year that I arrived. I literally wow. had not seen falling snow. Okay. Yeah. My body is calibrated to 65 degrees, dense fog, <laughs> right. light drizzle. Okay? Yeah. Right. So so any fluctuation, hotter or colder, is going to be troublesome for me. Right. Do you think that I had any clothes that I owned any clothes that would calibrate me to survive in 30 degree below zero weather? Hardly. Yeah. Do you think I had any clothes would calibrate me to to living in a humid area where it was 90 and above at certain times? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Probably just (laughs) now, now. Now, notice I didn't even get to the interpersonal element. I'm just saying, is my body, am I physically prepared to face the elements that I'm facing three or 4,000 miles away from home? Right. 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 Now, now if you're trying to, if you're trying to code switch professionally and you have to deal with that on top of it, can you imagine, Mm -hmm. can you imagine what I must've been like when I was trying to, to, to accomplish my studies in that part of the country? Yeah, that's, um, that's a lot to ask of a human being. Um, (laughs) It almost killed me. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it didn't. Um, and that we can be here to, to well, it, it's possible that I've experienced a chronic condition and I might just be slipping away here gradually, but, <laughs> but I'm still swinging, but I'm still swinging. That's excellent. That is excellent. Um, did yeah, you want I, to talk more about that? Because I know I spent a lot of time on professional element. I didn't delve deeply into the personal part of code switching. I would love to hear whatever you'd like to tell us about that. Hmm. And, well, and, see, you know, I don't know. Now, so, I'm really, I'm really curious about like in your personal life, like when you're switching, code switching with different people in your day to day life. You know, your students or other professionals, other teachers, any patients you might be dealing. You know, all, all of that. You know, how how do you so, so navigate do you want, these different contexts? All right. So, so you were asking me to to fast forward to today, then, correct? Sure. It, okay. Yeah. All if right. you'd like to. All right. So, um, 
So let me, um, I'm trying to think about this in the context of, of code switching. Um, maybe the easier, uh, there's two instances that come to mind, two circumstances that come to mind, and I'll, I'll address what I think is, is the easier uh, circumstance to, to describe. So um, I grew up, academically speaking, always interested in conducting research. Hmm. And, and for the sake of this discussion, without getting into to, to details about it, th- there, are, um, there are certain rules of the road that you learn in order to conduct sound research. And there are certain processes that you that you initiate. Um, there's this there's this commitment to the scientific method, this notion of observation, data collection, hypothesis testing, et cetera, that 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 bring you to a place where where you are then you at least have a chance of developing generalizable knowledge that can help advance humanity. Okay. So when one learns that and learns the nuances, you're learning two things. You're learning a specific language. You're learning what certain words mean. And you're learning a um, a context and a rationale for those words, right? Um, And and I I don't want to provide examples of of that because that it would be getting in the weeds on it. But but what I'm what I'm trying to convey is that among researchers, among doctor of philosophy trained researchers, mm-hmm. there is a language that you use to describe research projects in in terms of their flavor and their intent. And 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 researchers, generically speaking, know these things, or they it's reasonable to expect that they would know these things and know this language. One would not expect someone who is not a researcher to know that. Mm -hmm. For example, you wouldn't necessarily expect a patient to know research language. Okay. Right. So, so why then would a researcher want to communicate with a patient about research if I don't assume that they understand the language? The reason is because I'm invested, and, and many, if not, I'll say many researchers, are invested in designing research that addresses what patients find important, okay? Right. And so in order to address what a patient finds important, I have to do two things. One, I have to be able to communicate with them um, in a way that we both understand. That's the first thing. And the second is that I need to translate what they're saying in a way that allows me to design a study that will truly advance a patient's interest. Does, does that make sense? So, Absolutely. Absolutely. so, so, uh, so let me, let me talk about this in a metaphor here. If I learned, if I grew up as a carpenter, I, I learned certain things about how to build a house, right? And I learned a certain language about how to build a, a structure that will not collapse, right? And there's 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 certain uh, tools that I use. There's a certain way I look at the house. There's there there's a certain priorities that I'm going to assign when I build a house. Okay. Now. If I build that house from the perspective of a carpenter and singularly the perspective of a carpenter, I'm pretty sure I can build a sound, sturdy house, right? The problem is that that house may not be very useful to individuals who have any interest in moving. Right. 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 So, so if, if I build a house that has infinite number of support beams in it, or we can think of any sort of example of a house that, that may be structurally sound, but is impractical, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so how do I address this? 
how do I go from building a house that is that is structurally sound but completely unlivable mm -hmm. to building a house that is reasonably sound, right? Uh, uh, but accommodates the needs of a myriad of people who would be interested in moving into it. The primary way I would do that is I would speak with under other individuals who are interested in moving, right? People who own houses already. And I'd say, well, what is it that you like about your house? What don't you like about your house? What's the most important thing that you that you find in a house? What would compel you to leave your house? You know, any variant of those questions, right? And if I'm engaging in an authentic, a genuine, and a transparent conversation with those individuals, what I might come to find is that collectively, both that potential homeowner and myself can develop a house that not only suits that particular individual's needs, but a house that could serve the needs of any number of people. Right. Right. Uh, and so in that sense, my house would be more useful. Right. Uh, and and it would be it would be subject, it would not be subject to, to market fluctuations. It wouldn't be subject to personal whim, right? That I've built a house in such a way that it can stand for years and be useful for many years. It wouldn't have to be raised and then rebuilt. Okay. Now, shifting out of the metaphor and back to research, what I'm invested in doing is designing research that that reveals a generalizable truth about what patients desire within healthcare and what relative to maintaining their own wellness. The best way to go about doing that is involving patients in the research process from beginning to end, right? Yeah. Now that requires a significant amount of investment on both individuals, right? That I have to be uh, willing and patient um, to to um, to to talk to patients about the essentials of, of of a sound study, right? And the patient may have to be um, um, may have to understand that it may take me a while to understand their priorities and their values, right? with a mutual understanding that it may be that we can't fully integrate either one of our wishes, right? Um, we, we, we have to be made, able to make some concessions in order to make the research move forward, okay? Yeah. Does, does any of that make sense? I'm, I'm hoping that yeah. I'm capturing something here that, um, okay, back to code switching. Yeah. In order to do that, in order to do that, I have to, relinquish some of this native language that I have as a researcher. Right. And, but not entirely relinquish it, right? What I have to do is be able to release it enough to share with a, a patient. And when I use the word patient, I'm using that generically community member, uh, someone who's a non-researcher, right? right? I have to I have to relinquish the use of that language enough to retain a, a, a significance and a meaning to it, but allow for me and that patient to develop a shared language, right? right. Shared meaning, shared priorities, right? That can that can help design a study that can ultimately inform a patient on things that they value, right? right? or that collectively we value. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's a significant amount of investment because uh, there's a heck of a lot of volume <laughs> and knowledge volume. And, and we're pretty much challenged to do that in a very limited amount of time. Yeah. Right. We, 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 yes. we, we don't have relationships between you and me, for example, if we, if we met on the street, and we developed a relationship. How long would it take to develop a relationship where we got to a place where we trusted each other, where we deemed each other as trustworthy, where mm -hmm. we felt it, where we we felt safe being able to include each other in conversation, where we felt that we could have 
difficult conversations with each other and still stay tied to each other, still not give up on the relationship. Right. 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 That takes a lifetime. Right. In some sense, I'm asking for something unrealistic because I'm asking you to try to condense this, you know, into a very short time span with, with a, with a shot clock running. Right. So, so we may need to have this information in, in two months. Right. So I need to, I need to team with a patient and help me develop a research study and execute a research study in a matter of two months. Right. Yeah. That's a tall order. That's a tall order. Right. And I think it's sometimes why even the best code switchers, if, if we concede if we take the tact that code switching is a laudable tact, and I'm not convinced that that's always the case, right. Right. but if we if we assume that code switching is is uh, laudable, it might not be successful all the time simply because you you're trying to do a heck of a lot in a, in a short amount of time. Yeah, I hope I'm not rambling here. I'm trying to uh, trying to speak to to the topic, but but do so in a way to draw on. Um, a number of experiences that I've had um, um, professionally. Now, let me share another experience professionally. Absolutely. This is code switching. This this may fall under the the category of code switching. um, How do I say it? You have a code, you switch your code, and then you switch back again, right? Right, right, right. There's this this sort of rubber banding code switching. Maybe I call it that. So, so by virtue of my education, okay, I, I, let me back up. I'm going to, I'm going to take a round number and say that, that I have been a student for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you take, if you take grammar school, kindergarten, grammar school, high school. Okay. So what's that? That's uh, 12 years there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then you have four years of undergraduate. I'm at 16. Um, I had two years of a master program. I'm at 18. It took me roughly four years to complete my PhD. So we're, we're 22 years, right? Uh, Now, now forgive me because I'm leading up to something. I'm taking a long run for a short jump here. And so I've been in school for 22 years. And in the latter part of that, one might call me a professional student, right? When you're working on a PhD, you are a professional student, okay? So I earned the degree, which certifies that that I have completed the requirements necessary for me to hold the honor of being called a professional student, okay? Now, in this world, you have students and you have teachers, right? If you were looking to find someone to teach something, who might you look at first? Mm-hmm. You'd look at the professional student. There's, 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 I, I, I'd argue that you're not going to be a very good teacher if you haven't been a good student. Right. Right. So I'm in a position now where one of my responsibilities is to be a teacher. Uh, I hold a number of faculty appointments at a, at a number of universities and, and I have, I've, I've taught, courses at, at, at the graduate level. Okay. But what I want to establish before I get to that is that, that I, as a professional student, in some way, shape, or form, I have learned a culture and language of how to be a student. I've learned it well, yeah. right? E- even if I reflect on it and say, gee, I don't know that I really am a great student. I've done something to indicate that I've learned that language and culture well. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the degrees that I have. Okay. All right. right. Now, what I also learned in that is the, are, are the struggles of, of what it means to be a student, right? That, that, um, that's being a student isn't innate for a lot of people. You have to learn how to become a student. And that comes with a, a lot of blows to the ego. It comes with yeah. a lot of, of threats. It comes with a lot of fear. It's not um, it is not the type of charge that you assume lightly, 
if you're doing it seriously, right? There's right. a lot of people right. out there who go to school, but you know darn well they're not students. They're not, they're, and they're certainly not professional students, right? So, <laughs> so I say all that to say that that it's not all sunshine and roses being a student. There's a lot of right. fears. There's a lot of challenges, etc. Okay. Now I've made a transition. I've code switched from being a student to being a teacher. Right. And that has its own culture, right? Absolutely. It has its own way of being. It has its, you're a, now I am a steward of the academy. I'm a member of the academy. That is right. a, that is a very um, unique and in terms of the general population, it's a pretty rare cohort, right? Right. That, that, that has their set of values, assumptions, and ways of, of educating people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now. So now I've switched from my code as a student. Now I've taken on code as a teacher. I've adopted this code, right? Now, the practical example that I was trying to get to. <laughs> um, I um, created an assignment where individuals had to develop a, a, um, a research project, right? They just had to give me the, the broad overview about how they would study a topic. Topic's irrelevant here. Um, part of that is that they present that both um, in writing and orally, right? So they write it up and they also present it orally. Now, why did I demand that they give an oral presentation? Because part of being a scholar is presenting your ideas in an academic form and subjecting your work to scrutiny, uh, to, to criticism, in order to make the work better, right. to make your work more generalizable, to contribute to the public good, right? And so in order to make sure you do that, you have to subject your work to the scrutiny of the public good, right? Yeah. And so I uh, allowed students to, to choose the day from a, 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 a set of days, choose the days they would present, right? And, and every student um, signed up except one. I couldn't get this student to sign up. Yeah. I, in the role of a teacher and, and, thinking exclusively of my priorities to educate this entire class, found myself frustrated and befuddled about this person not signing up. Mm -hmm. I created a story, created a story uh -huh. yep. about why that student did not sign up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the story that I created was that uh, they, they were trying to burn me or they were trying to blow off the, the, the material or that they didn't care enough or any, any number of negative stories that I created with, by the way, no other information whatsoever. Right. Okay? Right, right. Yeah. What is it that I came to find? I came to find that this person was petrified of making the presentation. Okay. Now notice how that was the last thing that would have occurred to me as the teacher. I'm thinking, yeah. well, I, well, well, shoot, you're a student. I don't expect you to know anything. That's why you're a student. I'm the teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, I, what I'm trying to do is provide you a safe environment to make the presentation. Why was I making this assumption and why did I create that story? Because I had this code. I was operating on the code of teacher, not the code of the student. Yeah. And I had to switch back to being a student, right? I had to revisit what it meant to be a student in a PhD program, petrified by everything and everyone and being horrified that people would think I was stupid. I remember what that felt like, still yeah. haven't gotten over it, right? But, yeah. but, but I, I, didn't, I, I didn't successfully or expeditiously make that shift from teacher to student. Right. Now, I, I eventually did it before it's too late. But yeah. I think I think you're, you're understanding what I'm saying, that, that this was an example of, of me having to code switch from student to teacher. Then I had to switch from teacher back to student. Right. Right. In, in order to get everybody to the place that I'm ultimately responsible for getting them, which is teaching them how to be scholars. Right. Right. Um, 
and and so um, I I think that when people talk about code switching and the perils of code switching, if you're talking about it from the perspective of of race, for example, mm-hmm. right, that that there is a danger that once for example, if you're Japanese or if you're Lat- or if you're Latino or if you're African American and you have this if you if you are either forced or 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 feel compelled to code switch to the minority culture, you have to be careful that you don't forget what it means to be that other person. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you, 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 you have to be able to, I guess what I'm getting at is it, you, you have to remember that when you code switch, you still need to wear the glasses of your native code, right? right. You know, that you, right. you still need to hold on to that. And so what I, in my example, what I need to remind myself is that while I now don the cloak, of professor in my, mm-hmm. my case, associate professor, while I don that cloak of the academician, yeah. I should never fail to view my charge through the lens of being the student because I have to serve that student. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now I can't do that entirely, right? I, I can't completely go back to being a student and teaching a class as a student Right. Because that's not my response because I am a teacher now. Right. But I but I have to find a way to balance this notion of of once I have made this switch that I cannot forget from once I came. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? Do, okay. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. There's there's so much um, there's so much that I'm I'm like thinking of pulling in from, from previous episodes, but I know um, I saw Corey's eyes get all starry and sparkly when you're talking about like implementation and communicating research, because this is, this is our jam. So Corey, sure. I, I know you got, you got things to say. I, I do. I, okay. So, <laughs> so you're a person with three degrees who purposely does not identify as an academic, but does identify as a member of the academy and as a professor. And of all of the positions that you hold and all of the research you do, you very clearly think and plan and like process as a researcher in many ways. You also said that your PhD program was really biomedical and really into doctors treating patients who then make patients better. But mm-hmm. the research that you do is patient-centered and implementation, which is not the biomedical model so much. Yeah. It's a different yeah. so, way so to come me, around. Will you forgive me? Because I want to interrupt you here for a Absolutely. second here. Um, so um, I, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And and what I mean by that is I'm I'm not convinced that that a biomedical perspective operates independent of or at the exclusion of patient centeredness. Yes. In fact, in fact, I would argue that that where I receive my education, they highly prioritized patient preference. Right. They, that, that, that one of their tenants was trying to understand. Well, let, let me back up. One of the things that, that these groups of doctors did was try to understand why it is that. Two doctors would treat the same condition differently. Right now, one could take the tact of saying there's there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things and one person's doing it right and another person's doing it wrong right they completely suspended that their argument was it is possible that both of these doctors are practicing appropriately given the patient's values and preferences and before we start um deciding what treatment what works best, we have to figure out 
what treatment works best for which patient. And so there was very much an investment in understanding and, and, and calibrating treatments and care systems to addressing patient preference. Okay. So I, so, so I want to be clear about that. My earlier argument was simply I, I, because of the way I grew up academically, would not think to begin my search for, for patient-centered health in a hospital. I would think to start that in, in a community context. Where is it that these people live? What hazards are they exposed to, right? Um, and, and that's just not where this group of doctors started. And, there, and I don't want to devalue that. There's an equal value. It's, it's incredibly important to understand which treatment works best for which patients under what circumstances, right? I, I'm simply making the argument that, that when I arrived there, I didn't have any idea how to do that or how to think about that, right? And my code switching was that I had to, I had to learn how to do that, okay? So, so I'm, I'm, I, I just, I interrupted you to, to clarify not necessarily your thinking, but to, but I didn't, I feel that I might have walked you down a road to make an assumption that I didn't, I didn't in, entirely intend. I, I simply intended to convey that um, when one contemplates health and wellness, you can grab the elephant in any number of places um, and grabbing the tail versus grabbing the trunk isn't qualitatively better or worse it's just different, and one needs to be aware of the differences and the implications related thereto. Now that I've interrupted you, please continue, because I think that you were leading up to something here. I, I think I'm very good at running down roads, so <laughs> um, that's fine. Uh, so you talked about rubber banding. Yes. Um, can you talk about your rubber banding within what you do now? as a researcher. So you have this biomedical model that you've had no idea of and then spent four to five yeah. years immersed in. And you had yeah. your community stuff that you spent, sounds like six years essentially mm -hmm. immersed in. Yeah. Um, how would you describe what you do now? Um, I think that all researchers are unique beings created out of wherever they came from and we yeah. need all of the unique beings, so. Wow, let me, let me see here. Um, I'm trying to think where I want to where I want to begin. Um, so, uh, so I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a response, and I'm going to hunt and peck for an answer to your question here, right? So you're going to have to be patient and help me out here, right? I'm all about exploring. So <clears throat> okay, all right, let us explore. All right, <clears throat> all right. so um, rubber banding. All right. Um, I, <clears throat> I work within a health system, health system, and <clears throat> consequently, I have an obligation to both the system and the patients, but let's, let's focus more on the system, right? I have an obligation to, to the system to address the goals and aspirations that, that they're prioritizing. Okay. And so in that sense, I'm not out on an Island designing research studies or exploring projects that, that I think are important. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I am, I am taking my lead from the system that employs me. Right. Um, now I could stop doing that. I could just quit, right, and 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 you know go make widgets or something, you know, or, or or whatever. But but while I'm employed here, I have an obligation to 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 meet the goals and challenges and address the priorities that, of my employers, right. So I have to make sure that I am speaking to developing research that addresses clinical questions, questions that they've identified as being important to solve, okay? Now, there is a wonderful article by um, some scholars named Brandt and Gardner, 
And, and they're talking about, it was published in 2003, uh, and, and it's talking about the, how public health and medicine started out together and diverged, but then has come back together again. And, and they were making the comment along the lines that if, if partnership means capitulation to a biomedical paradigm where the researcher, me in this case, only brings to bear his analytic skills to solve problems that are exclusively clinical, that something central may be lost, right? And it's an opportunity to, to advance the clinical enterprise, understanding the socio-political context in which people live, work, and play, right? So I say all that because there's a rubber banding that I have to do here, right? I have to make sure that I'm addressing the, the, the challenges and the priorities that the system has outlined, but I also have to try to do it in a way that addresses the welfare of the patients that I'm responsible for serving, right? And, and that the system is responsible for serving as well. And I don't wanna make this an adversarial relationship. I'm just saying that, that for the most part, the leaders in a hospital will be doctors and nurses, right? And they grew up, metaphorically speaking, they grew up seeing problems a certain way. The fundamental identification of a problem is predicated upon how they grew up right? I grew up a different way. And so I'm not even going to identify the, pro uh, the problems that they might identify. But even if I did, I would have a different way of dealing with it, right? I am challenged with writing a fine line between respecting and addressing their, um, the fundamental premise of what they think is important to research right? I have to balance that. Ever, being ever mindful that I can't simply capitulate to, to being a puppet to do what they would have me do, right? That, that my, my training and my degree bring with it a responsibility as sacred as the Hippocratic Oath, right? That, that I have a responsibility to generate the truth, right? To generate generalizable knowledge and to do it in an equitable fashion, right? And to, 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 to benefit everybody right and so so i find myself in this circumstance where i have to think through now if i have a very clinical problem i have to try to extract the socio socio-ecological implications of this and present this to the providers and the system at large to say we need to think about this problem more broadly and here's the reason why and here's the ultimate benefit that it may bring to our patients as well as the organization. Um, I'm gonna put a pin in this and see if, did I address any of your questions or did I give you anything to probe or any way to help refine the way I respond to you? I, that was a great answer. Um, I think that a lot of people don't understand how research works. We all have this sort of image that you got in eighth grade about hypotheses and beakers and that research sure. itself is actually something much more complicated. And I think that you um, illuminated that really well, actually. So you have all of these hats that you put on even in just your research role, and then you have all of your other roles as well. And, and you know, let me let me build on that um, because um, you're, let me, okay. So let me build on that. There's a reason why I wanna build on this. You are, I agree with you that when people use the word research, everybody thinks that they have an understanding of what that is, right? Stereotypically, it's a person in a lab coat with a Bunsen burner and, and beakers and, 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 and they are um, looking for some chemical reaction, right? Um, now, it is reasonable to think of it that way because there are domains of research, even health-related research, that resemble that. Basic sciences, right, where you're trying to understand the, the fundamental molecular underpinnings of, of how things work, right? And that, that speaks more to the stereotypical perspective on research. The, 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 the domain that I 
reside in thinks less about um, cellular or molecular levels and more about how this complicated enterprise works, right? How does this health system work to produce optimal health for a particular patient? How does this entire community coalesce to produce positive and negative outcomes, unfortunately, for patients, right? Why is it that some healthcare systems sometimes either prioritize or feel more comfortable with the former as opposed to the latter? I'll give you my answer. It's because it's so gosh darn difficult to do the kind of work that people like me do, right? Uh, the, the people that, that, that do the kind of work or are interested in the kinds of questions I'm interested in are psychologists, they're sociologists, they're regional planners, they're public policy, they're economists. There's this whole constellation of disciplines that on the face of it seem quite distal from a clinical practice enterprise, but healthcare is understanding now that those stakeholders and that type of expertise is more desperately needed now than ever to understand the problems that we're facing. Does that make sense? The problem is, is that it's just very difficult to do that work, number one, to even do the work, and two, is very difficult to to glean a causal inference sometimes because you have so many things going on, right? The luxury, and I put that in quotes, the luxury of a basic science, right? Or, 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 or more traditional healthcare design is that you, you, um, you implement an intervention, you measure its effect, right? The drug either works or it doesn't, right? Or, or the cell either splits or it doesn't. Right. Um, that that I think is it's easier for a person to get their head around than it is trying to understand the social psychological factors that inform why it is that a person would elect to have a prostate uh, a PSA test as opposed to not. Right. Or why is it that 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 individuals would seek breast cancer screening? Right. Or, or any number of, of clinical questions. Um, does, does that make sense? I feel like it's the difference between, so people talk about hard science and soft science, but I think of soft science more as like squishy science. <laughs> like it's not as defined, it's much more amorphous. And because it's amorphous, like it's hard to trap or hug or define or write about or describe right. or any right. of those things. Right. And, and <clears throat> I'm going to, I agree that those that 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 scientists use those terms hard and soft science. <clears throat> I bristle at that for two reasons. One, because I these are my own hangups and my own issues. That that I feel that that hard is preferable and soft is less preferable. Right? We disagree, Adil. Right, just okay. so you know. <laughs> Okay, right, right. And, 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 the, and the second part of that is that where, if we were to talk about the domain of soft science, there is a misguided belief that quote unquote soft science isn't governed by a set of tenets or fundamental truths that have been tried and tested over time. Right, that that there are social psychological truisms, conceptual models for how individuals behave, right, and and I find them to be as empirically sound as the periodic table of elements, right. That that and so, I, you know, I I know that you weren't using it in that way. I'm saying that the world out there uses these terms and there's this there's this connotation that 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 these terms carry that that I don't think are entirely accurate or do justice to either either domains of, of science. I would agree. Any other thoughts? And and please 
feel free to criticize, challenge, or strike down anything that I'm proposing because I'm just giving you stuff that's off the top of my head, a stream of consciousness here. So I Hugh will um really enjoys participating in qualitative patient-centered research. So um Thanks for supporting qualitative patient-centered research. Uh, thank you all for being who you are because the enterprise is not going to move forward without you. I guarantee it. Yep. Fighting the good fight. <laughs> all of us. Is there any other fight to fight? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, this is, I, I can see clearly that we might need to have you back for next season because next season we are talking specifically about research. Um, I'd be honest. What it is, and yeah, yeah. Um, if I haven't completely stunk it up, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to 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 join again. <laughs> it's more like crossover. <laughs> <laughs> we love a crossover here. Um, I was just sitting here thinking, I wish we had three more hours to just <laughs> delve into all you, of this. You give so. me three more hours, and uh, you you give me a podium to kick out my jams, and 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 I'll go to town. I'll, we can I'll do that for, <laughs> for better, for worse. <laughs> um, no, this is great. So. Um, before we we kind of wrap up this episode, because I I do seriously want to talk to you about coming back for next season, um, is there anything um, around code switching that you feel like needs to be said that hasn't been said? So, if we were to talk about code switching as as something someone does to assimilate to a culture. Mm. Um, for the in the hopes of of approval or 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 gaining something of value, I I would be careful that one finds that they are are chasing a mirage mm -hmm. because it does not matter to many people how much you acculturate they will still label you and treat you by your original code, right? And so it makes it all the more important that you not lose yourself in that. Um, I think that if one is code switching in order to advance the collective good, then there is an advantage in, um, in allowing space to um, develop a shared language um, that can help advance a scholarly or personal enterprise collectively. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. I, I, because what I'm trying to do is, is, is to capture the notion that um, if you're code switching, looking for a pot of gold, you're never gonna get it. And you're gonna be more miserable um, because uh, you will feel cheated. However, if you are code switching because you think that collectively you can advance the common good, there's the opportunity, and and, and there's the there's a value in in controlled and calibrated code switching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think you said it very well that um, as long as you keep you know who you are at the core, and that doesn't. Like and and I'd say that's not always easy, mm -hmm. right? That's not simple because I think that's our life journey. Who am I, right? right? Uh, I mean, for goodness sake, do you think that I didn't ask that question when I traveled 3,000 miles to New England? Who am I? Right. You know, um, uh, and I, you know, on some level, you ask that question every day. You're, you're constantly daunted by challenges. You're, you're constantly, if you're smart, I think. You're constantly looking yourself in the mirror and you and you are asking yourself, am I perceiving myself and the world the way it truly is, not how I imagine it to be, right? In, in my earlier example, am I evaluating this student as they truly are, not as I imagine them to be, yes. right? Uh, I think that it it takes a great talent and a lifetime of refinement to to be in that place, right? And so, bottom line is, I'm still on my 
I'm still, I still have a heavy learning curve here. Uh, and I'm still trying to be the, the best person, the best professor and the best researcher I can be. I'm a long way from it, but hopefully if I have another couple of years to suck air off of this planet, uh, I'll, I'll get. <laughs> I think we're all in that same, <laughs> same space. <laughs> Love that. Well, thank you so much for being here today for, for sharing. Um, wait, wait, you're, you're hanging up on me now? I, 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 I mean, <laughs> For the moment. I thought this was just, this was just the end of the first quarter. I, I, we I got to go back to good fight. We've got to have a snack so we can fight the good fight. No. <laughs> but, um, I mean, let's consider it a pause because I I, I think that, that there's a lot more that we would love to have you come and talk about. Well, like I say, I'd be honored and, and feel free to reach out to me anytime you, you, you want to brainstorm or even informally, you know, you want to bounce ideas off of somebody, you know, I can be a sounding board. That's wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Well, I don't know how valuable it'll be, but it'll, it'll be something. You know? <laughs> it'll be entertaining at least, right? It'll be, it'll be wonderful. On all sides. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for, for being here. Thank time. you for being here. Um, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Talk soon. Interdisciplinary is produced by Heelwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can... Send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.